0: Negotiation is a part of life. We've all negotiated in situations that seem like high stakes, asking for a job raise or bargaining with a rebellious teenager, but few of us have ever been thrown into a situation where our words can literally save or cost someone's life. On today's show, we'll take a look at some of the most famous hostage crises in recent times and explore how negotiators get peaceful outcomes in tense situations and why sometimes things don't go as planned. Welcome to The Forensic Psychologist, a show about the psychology of law and crime. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a psychologist and private investigator, and your host for today's show on crisis negotiation and bargaining for people's lives. This is a brand new show, and I am thrilled that you're listening in. And for those of you who are wondering about my esteemed colleague and former co-host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, don't worry, he'll be back for plenty of guest appearances. But speaking of guests, I'd like to introduce you to today's guest, Gary Nesner, the former chief hostage negotiator for the FBI and the author of Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Negotiator. Welcome to the show, Gary.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, we are really happy to have you. I want to start out by asking you, I know you are with the FBI for many, many years. How does the FBI, or I guess when do they get involved in a hostage situation?
1: Typically, there has to be a a federal crime nexus. Uh, Bank robberies are investigated by the FBI. So if someone's holding hostages in a bank or a skyjacking or a prison riot, right-wing militia standoff, those are the ones on a military base or Indian reservation, anything that has a post office, a federal connection, but also the FBI for many years has done most of the instruction for police around the country in the topic of hostage negotiations, crisis negotiations. And in, when the police have a thorny or a difficult situation, they'll often reach out to the FBI for some assistance and we provide
0: them. So they could actually invite you to come in, even if it's yes. not even a federal crime has not been committed. That's correct. You know, I was preparing for the show and I think my idea was that a hostage situation is some kind of terrorist situation. It's some kind of kidnapping for money situation. And what I realized is it really can include a ton of things like prison riot or a domestic violence situation where a husband is holding a wife hostage or vice versa. So I would imagine that you have seen a lot of different situations in the course of your career.
1: Indeed. And there's a wide spectrum of incidents that, we respond to, the police as well. But, you know, one of the um, misnomers that everything's a terrorist situation, and those are pretty rare, and most law enforcement negotiators will never negotiate in a, in a terrorist incident. I've, I've done it a number of times, but most people will be in the position to have to respond to one of those. But yeah, they, they range all over the place. And in fact, when we created a standalone expanded negotiation component after Waco, I decided to name it the Crisis Negotiation Unit instead of the Hostages Negotiation Unit because uh, hostages are, are a subset of that.
0: You mentioned Waco, and I think that's certainly was a situation that there were a lot of different opinions about the outcome of that and what happened and what should have happened. And I know that you were directly involved in that, in that case. So tell us about that.
1: Well, let, let me just preface first because it, it comes into play for Waco, too. You know, a hostage situation is essentially someone's holding someone else to force somebody to do something, give them money, give them getaway car, whatever it might be. And in those cases, law enforcement has a fair amount of control because they need us to do what they want. They're there to get their demands met, not necessarily to die. That's only about 10% of what happens in law enforcement. The other 90% are those emotionally charged situations that you made reference to a few minutes ago, the escalated domestic situations, perhaps anti-government groups that are expressing their strong feelings, and Waco was in essence one of those. So going to Waco, and we have a, a religious cult, for lack of a better term, in Texas, and there's information indicating they're illegally uh, altering weapons, and they come under the uh, purview of the Alcohol Tobacco on Farms, another federal agency who attempts to serve arrest warrant for David Koresh and a search warrant. And in the process of preparing for that, the Davidians right before the raid find out they're coming. They're prepared for it. There's a shootout that ensues and four ATF agents are killed, 17 wounded and five or six Davidians die in that initial shootout. So that's the situation that now brings the FBI into play because uh, killing a federal officer is a federal crime that the, FBI investigates, regardless of which agency it happens to. So our job is then to go out there and to to resolve this. Now, going back to something I just said earlier, it's not really a hostage situation because nobody inside is technically held against their will. They're where they want to be, following the leader that they believe in. So it's a very challenging situation when the people you're trying to get to cooperate, in essence, have only one demand, and that's for you to go away and leave them alone. Which you can't do. You can't do. You can't walk away and say, well, you know, we'll just call it even and forget about all this uh, loss of life and so forth. It's just not going to happen. So it has to be resolved. It has to be some legal process that takes place to determine who did what and whether charges need to be brought and criminal prosecution pursued.
0: And so how would you be involved in that situation?
1: the attorney general decided the fbi would take over the management of the crisis and the efforts to resolve it peacefully so our number one primary tool for that is first and foremost uh, utilizing crisis negotiators to diffuse the situation and to gain cooperation of people to come out and put their weapons down and all that sort of thing and and so that's the typical process i i flew out from washington that night And I bring in 15, 20 of my negotiators from around the country who were experienced, and we begin the process of setting up a negotiation operations center through which we would begin our negotiation efforts to convince David and Koresh and the others to come out safely.
0: And so in that situation, like you said, it's hard to realize what kind of leverage you might have because to some extent, it might be easy to think that they have nothing to lose at that point.
1: Yeah, your leverage is minimal. I mean, Mm -hmm. again, if a a bank robber wants a getaway car or somebody wants their brother released from prison, there's a specific thing they want and and you'd be able to get them to moderate their demands by a counteroffer or slowly convincing them that they don't have as much power and control as they want. In this case, you basically have to create a relationship of trust where they realize they can't stay in there forever. They have to come out and face the music. So that's, that's the tools that you have at your disposal. So it becomes pretty challenging to convince people to do something that they may not really be comfortable doing. The government had shown up to implement some arrest warrants and search warrants, and there'd been a terrible loss of life. So now my team and I show up, we say, hey, we want to be your friends. We're here to help. So it's a tough sell in many ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So looking back at that situation, it's always easy to play Monday morning quarterback, for sure, when you have a really difficult situation like this. What do you think did not go well in that situation? And what would have improved it?
1: Well, the major obstacle we had was David Kresh was a, a, a very uh, powerful cult leader. I mean, he basically made all the decisions and... Often it appeared to us that he would change his mind, not follow through on things he promised he would do, and was in many senses uh, abusing his followers for his own interests. So that was the toughest obstacle. The next most difficult obstacle for the negotiation team is we had an on-scene commander and a tactical commander who, along with the negotiation coordinator myself, are the three primary decision makers. But the other two we're very frustrated with Koresh's resistance and uh, failure to follow through on representations he made. And their inclination was to demonstrate an ability to use force against them and to engage in some aggressive maneuvers on the outside that would compel them to come out. Now, as negotiators, we knew that was uh, contradictory and not appropriate. We call it the paradox of power. The harder you push, the more likely it is that you are to be met with resistance.
0: And so, what do you think would have made it better?
1: Well, we, my negotiation team, I was only there the first half of the ordeal, and and we got so there's some 26 days, and we got uh, 35 people out, including 21 children. Now, while I'm proud of that achievement, it is far short of of getting everyone out safe and sound. And I'm I'm convinced that. With, we had had more complementary behavior from the tactical folks that we probably could have established a better working relationship and secured the safe release of a lot more people and perhaps everyone. So while I ultimately blame David Koresh for the outcome, because every day he had an opportunity to come out and bring his followers, yet refused to do so, mm-hmm. but the FBI didn't also make some mistakes. This isn't a black and white situation. There's a lot of gray and there are people that think the government just went out there and wanted to kill everybody. And then there's others that think everybody inside was a kook and a nut and deserved to die. And these are really silly, uninformed positions. It is far more complex than that.
0: I bet, and I would imagine one of the most complicated things is just the different team members. I mean, how do you deal with disagreement you know, among the different team members?
1: in the FBI's command structure, there's an overall decision maker. He's sort of like the general on the scene. And then there's the head of the tactical team, the SWAT team, in this case, the hostage rescue team. And then there's the chief negotiator. So the three of them create sort of a a triumvirate that, that generally work together collegially and make the best decision that leads to a peaceful outcome. But in this case, the FBI's long established orthodoxy for doing this got out of kilter. And the an uh, on commander would say to me, yes, your recommendation for the approach you want to take with negotiations is good. You have my authority go forward. And I would do that. And then the tactical commander would say, well, we want to go forward with the tanks and crush some cars. And he would say, yep, you have my permission. Go ahead. And it's quite easy to see how that ended up unintentionally sending very mixed signals to the Davidians. Are you going to believe the nice man on the phone who says he wants to help or the guy in the tank that just crushed your car in front of the compound? So it created a lot of problems for the negotiation team get things back on track and get the flow of people coming out after some of these fairly reckless tactical initiatives.
0: Do you ever try to match the negotiator with the hostage taker?
1: Sometimes we do, but, but typically... A good negotiator is a good negotiator, and uh, someone who is uh, adept at not coming across in an authoritative or aggressive way, but just saying, hey, my is Gary, and uh, I'm here to help you, David, and this is a difficult situation, and I'd really like to work together for us to work together so we can get those kids out and get everybody out safe, and yeah, there's some legal issues that are going to have to be addressed, but it's certainly not going to get any better by staying inside. And things like you need to tell your side of the story because they were certainly very upset at the way the raid had taken place. And fine, here's your opportunity to come out and tell the world uh, your point of view and how you feel that this was not appropriate. So there's so many avenues of um, encouragement that we provided. But, but I think David Koresh was classic ambivalent. I think part of him wanted to come out and do those things that we suggested. And part of him just didn't want to leave the compound and, you know, put himself under the control of the the government. And so his decision became no decision.
0: What about, we've we've kind of alluded to this already, Gary, but these emotion driven situations. Mm. When you have a husband who's estranged or his wife is threatening to leave him and he grabs her or he holds the kids hostage. What are the special challenges in those situations?
1: Those are the most routine and common things that police do. But also when there's a loss of life, it is typically those domestic situations where there's a pre-existing relationship between the people involved, often a romantic relationship gone bad. Those can be the most challenging and dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, The guy who's holding his girlfriend because she's threatened to leave him or she's had an affair or whatever it might be, there is almost always some very stormy, challenging history between those two that impacts every aspect of the ordeal. So those are quite different. And we often find we're in a situation where it's what we call a homicide to be that he intends to kill or he just hasn't got around to doing it yet. So it's it's very hard to, to steer someone like that away from the violence. And, and it's tough for the police because a great many of those are just somebody that's had too much to drink and will come to his senses eventually. But it's hard to determine which one of those will be the ones where the guy simply goes through with his threats and and kills the woman and then kills himself. And sometimes children too. It's It's a tragic situation. But those are the ones that cause police the most heartaches. And of course, negotiators also respond to a great many suicides. And most suicidal people are not bad people. They're just having a real bad time in their life. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, they made the decision and they alone decided the outcome. But when some otherwise very nice person takes their life when you're talking to them, negotiators can take that very personally because they'll question themselves. What should I have said? What could I have done better that would have convinced this person not to harm themselves? How did I fail?
0: So, Carrie, what would you think would be, I guess, kind of best practices when you're dealing with somebody who is threatening suicide?
1: We try to find what we call a hook for them. You know, something that is important to them in life. Uh, when, when people get suicidal, they get tunnel vision. And it's it's a suicide, we know, is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But these people all of a sudden see there's no alternative but to take their own life. We obviously try to broaden their perspective. But also, if there's someone important, they may not appreciate, you thought about the impact this will have on your grandchildren. And you know, the statistics for When family members have someone in their family commit suicide, it, you know, doubles the likelihood that they'll kill themselves. Yeah. And you start to get them to think about, this isn't just about relieving your current pain and discomfort and hurt. This has a a major impact on other people that are important in your life. We just try to get them through the crisis right now. I'm going to get you help now. I'm going to take you to see the mental health counselor and we're going to get you the tension that you need that you haven't been getting elsewhere, because I'm concerned about you. And, you know, I think if you'll put this off for a while and give somebody a chance to help you, I can't watch you forever and I can't stop you from harming yourself later, but I need you to not do it right
0: now. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Gary Znesner, the former chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. One of the toughest challenges he's faced is the person who is actively suicidal, someone who's threatening to jump off a bridge or maybe a tall building. While suicide isn't our focus for today's show, I wanna make sure that everybody knows how important it is to reach out and get some advice if you're worried that somebody you care about could be thinking about suicide. Please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255.
2: AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: the forensic psychologist in our show on crisis negotiation and bargaining with people's lives. Before the break, we were talking about various types of crisis situations and the various strategies for communicating under crisis. How do you assess credibility? And does it even matter?
1: Well, it it, it can. What we try to do at any incident, regardless of where it sits on the spectrum of the type of incident or the lethality, we, we try to find as much as we can about this person's mental health history, their criminal history, their relationships, their work record, their how do the neighbors describe them, how impulsive are they? So part of the negotiations team team's effort is not just to talk to this person about not doing what we're trying to get them not to do, but the team is gathering information and learning whatever we can about this person, what makes them tick and using that, to help us formulate the best strategy forward.
0: How long do most negotiations last?
1: Well, for the police, they're they're probably six hours and less. Probably 90% of them are in that range. It's the classic Friday night after work. Got paycheck, went to the bar, got a bottle of booze and drank and came home to beat up the wife and, and the police show up or there's a shouting match. Maybe a gunshot's fired and the police have to now go to some ramshackle apartment building or trailer or whatever it is, and hopefully everything works out well, and it usually does. Typically, the emotional outburst will subside after a few hours. You know, I always tell people to envision in your mind a childhood teeter-totter in a a playground. And if you think about the two ends of that teeter-totter, when one's up, the other is automatically down. And if you look at the one up in the air as representing emotion, and then the one on the ground is rational thinking and behavior so the negotiator can't just show up and say you're acting like a fool six hours from now you're going to start thinking clearly and you're going to do what i tell you it doesn't work that way we, we have to first work towards lowering the emotional content of the engagement the interaction the confrontation
0: well, how do you we, do that gary like how would you well, I, start I to that?
1: how we get somebody to lower their emotion be more Cordial in talking with us and exploring the issues and problems is we use active listening that we borrowed from your profession many years ago, <laughs> counseling. We ask open-ended questions, we paraphrase, we summarize, we use minimal encouragers, we eye messages. And we essentially make the cheapest concession we can make, and that is listening to somebody. We don't just say we understand. We demonstrate it by restating in our own words what we're hearing not only about what they're going through, but how they feel about it. You know, you might say to somebody holding his boss, it sounds like you were very disappointed when your boss passed you up for that last promotion. And the person will respond and say, yes, I was terribly disappointed, which now allowed me to demonstrate that I understand him because that's what I said. Or he may say, no, that's not how I felt at all. I was mostly confused. Well, that's okay. We've learned something else there, that confusion was the predominant response he had to this set of circumstances. So when we make a good effort to try to articulate how we think we understand, we either get immediate validation and we get points from that person for having gotten it right, or we get the corrective response from him that that better clarifies for us what the issues are. So it's a win-win. And if we do this patiently and we Keep the right tone of voice and the right demeanor, and we don't attack or criticize or lecture. It's the pathway for success over ninety percent of the time.
0: So, okay, Carrie, what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen in terms of negotiating? Because I would imagine that there would be some people who'd be like, Don't coddle to this person, or yeah. we've got to take action, we've got to show him or his boss. I mean, do you ever hear stuff like that, and, and how do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I,
1: you do hear that. Law enforcement is a bit like the military. There's We attract a lot of people that are very strong and decisive, and when they don't get compliance from somebody, they're frustrated that their authority is not recognized. <laughs> they take it personally, and then they want to move more swiftly into a, a tougher response to force uh, the person to comply. And that happens you know, more often than you might realize. So it takes a lot of self-control, which is the first thing we teach negotiators, to not attack the person verbally, to not demean them, to not be disrespectful to them, even when they're perhaps treating you that way as a negotiator. So you've got to constrain yourself and control your emotion. We always say, how can you expect to influence or control someone else if you can't control your own emotions? So- when so, Gary,
0: are there situations, and I would imagine they may be relatively rare, but they happen where you feel like you have to go in? You know, oh, you're, certainly. And One, are, what are those situations?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Joni, because we don't, philosophically in law enforcement, use force unless we have to. And it is the least desirable of our options. When we use force, we need to be able to articulate both in a court of public opinion and in a court of law, that the behavior and actions and statements of the perpetrator left us with no recourse. He came out waving a gun or he was about to kill a hostage or he put a short deadline on us whatever it might be. We can't say we went in and we had to shoot him and why did we go in then? Well, we just kind of got tired and you know it was cold and we were hungry, it was raining outside. That doesn't cut it. We have to be able to articulate item by item those things that we saw or witnessed that lead, led us to believe that our failure to act was far more likely to result in someone being seriously harmed or killed and that was the compelling reason that forced us to do what we did. The public understands that when they hear that. I mean, the situation going on in the United States right now with Mr. Floyd, who, who was had the guys, uh, officer's neck, uh, knee on his neck, you know, was he OD controlled? Was he in a situation where he wasn't presenting a threat to the officers anymore? And if so, then why was that level of force used? Because the public looks at that and, and they say, well, It looked like you had him under control. So why did you continue to put that pressure on his neck? I don't want to prejudge the case, but I'm just using this as an example to show you that, you know, the public increasingly with cell phones and cameras and so forth, they can see for themselves what they think is appropriate, justifiable action by the police and and what does not appear to be. I I wonder
0: sometimes how much fear comes into play with... uh,
1: on whose yep. side?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. actually, on both sides, where I, oh. I can certainly see a uh, law enforcement officer being in a situation like the protests that are going on now, when this person's out on the street and facing people who are angry, who are upset. I can see how a situation like that could quickly escalate, in spite of the best of intentions on both parts, perhaps.
1: A- absolutely. It becomes, you know, two opposing camps, you know, red flag, blue flag, and It's us against them, and that's certainly something that happens, and we have to really be careful to, you know, to find a way to work cooperatively with protesters who are very grieved at, at their perception of what happened, instead of allowing it to digress into a my side against your side and I'm all right and you're all wrong kind of approach which I don't think is typically helpful to anybody. But fear definitely enters into it. You've probably heard of that system, the FAT system where you stand in front of a screen and various scenarios are presented to you in terms of whether you shoot or don't shoot. And you have a gun that, when it shoots, it registers on the screen. Well, when they bring citizens through or prosecutors and they put them in those scenarios, they quickly change their entire perception about officer uh, use of force because all of a sudden they've, Accidentally shot somebody, or they didn't shoot somebody quick enough, and they ended up getting killed, or their partner was killed. And in other words, they come to realize that officers often uh, fear for their lives and have to make a decision in split seconds. And sadly, sometimes it's the wrong decision.
0: Switching gears just a little bit, Gary, uh, how often have you been involved with international hostage situations? Quite a few.
1: You know, for a good bit of my career, I worked overseas hijackings, and and then also. The kidnapping of American citizens abroad. I worked probably 120 of those in the last 10 years of my career, and a good many of those were American citizens kidnapped by terrorist groups: the Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, the FARC, or the ELN in Colombia. I flew down to Peru when you know the the MRTA terrorists took over the Japanese ambassador's residence and took a couple hundred hostages, including Americans. So yeah, I have some experience in, in dealing with that. It's always far more complicated when you're, you're dealing with terrorism, not just because the adversaries are different, but because the, the number of players and responders involved is completely different. And, and sometimes too many people with too many ideas about what to do is not necessarily a good thing.
0: I can certainly see that. Now, what are your thoughts about ransom? Should we pay well, ransom? Is that part of the negotiation? What are your thoughts as an FBI negotiator? Yeah.
1: I'm glad you asked that. I don't get asked that enough. Way back, I think, going to President Reagan, he said the United States will, will, will not uh, pay a ransom. And I agree that the United States government should not pay a ransom to terrorists. It is against the law right now for a U.S. citizen you who know, potentially could be prosecuted for paying a ransom to a group on the State Department's terrorist list. However, I also know that just because a terrorist group is holding someone it does not mean it's a political demand. And in fact, in the overwhelming majority of cases, it's like any other kidnap for money that a criminal group would do. It just happens to be done by a group that's terrorist and is using the kidnapping to raise money. In those instances, in my uh, experience, you only have two choices. You, there's either going to have to be some sort of payment or the person will never come out alive. And I don't believe the government should prohibit or stand in the way of a family or even a, a company from paying a ransom so long as it's done with U.S. government input and support and not money, but guidance. And, you know, the whole goal is to get the hostage out alive and then we will go after the kidnappers and prosecute them. Joni, when I was a young FBI agent, we had a fair number of kidnappers from ransom in the United States. And it's almost unheard of today. And the reason is because the FBI got really good at catching them. And because of that, smart criminals realize that their chances of getting away with a kidnap for ransom in the United States is almost non existent. So they don't do that crime anymore. Unfortunately, where these things happen overseas, there's uh, corrupt police, in incompetent prosecution, short prison sentences, you know, any number of systemic failures that end up insufficiently criminalizing this behavior and punishing uh, kidnappers for what they do. And that's the countries where this flourishes. Today, Mexico City is probably still number one place in the world for kidnappings, for ransom, and uh, it's because of the corruption.
0: Interesting. Are you familiar with the Silvia Romano case that just kind of came on, on my radar? It just had several different angles to it I wanna get your input into. Sylvia Romano was an Italian aid worker who was kidnapped in hell for 18 months in captivity in Africa. Um, that was by a gang affiliated with a Shabba militant group. And, you know, she was released after 18 months. And what was kind of interesting about this case is After she was released, she was wearing a hijab. She was saying she converted to Muslims. And there's been a tremendous outrage in the Italian community about this person who apparently was victimized in the sense that she was kidnapped and held by this militant group. And then when when she was released, she looks very different, acts very different, says very different. And we just want to get, what are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, I don't know for sure, but it it might be a, one of the rare manifestations of what you've heard called the Stockholm syndrome. And it's where the, the victim ends up to some extent identifying with the perpetrators. It's also called survival identification. So the the psychological element is that by um, showing an affinity towards my captors, they're less likely to kill me. And it's far more rare than people think every time a hostage says or does something funny, people say Stockholm syndrome. And it's just, it's very, very rare but it does happen, and and that might be a case. You know, famously, we know it from the Patty Hearst case. Patty Hearst is kidnapped, and next thing you know, we see her show up at a bank, you know, known as Tanya, carrying a gun. And how much of that was coerced, how much was voluntary, I don't know. But that might be the case of what we're seeing here. And I would just caution people to you know be a little easy on people who have had such a traumatic experience. And um, the stresses and pressures they go through in, in, a, in a very challenging captivity.
0: Yeah, I can certainly see that. I do kind of associate it with the Patty Hearst case years and years ago. I just, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of hard to think that that might even still exist.
1: Well, it does. But as I said, you know, it, it's a it's a very rare phenomenon. You know, it goes back to a, a bank robbery in Stockholm back in the 70s and, uh, you know, these bank robbers held these uh, female employees in the bank vault in the basement. And, you know, after the very traumatic ordeal, uh, the women sort of got engaged to these guys and two to the women developed a relationship with them. And that's the first time that it was really noted that this phenomena could occur. But again, for every time I've heard somebody try to apply it to a situation, I mean, it's been extremely rare where it's, where it's actually been uh, the, the right uh, diagnosis for lack of a
0: better term. One group we haven't talked about is this of prison riots Mm. and just wanted to know what is your experience in dealing with prison riots and are there differences? Of course, I'm sure there are in negotiating with, in in this context.
1: Yeah. I've, I've worked a number of them been on the scene and they're always challenging. You know, prisons present a unique tactical challenge because not only are they built so people can't get in. So they're, a very challenging tactical target. And and typically, prison riots, just like some of the unrest going on in the streets this past week, you can't really negotiate a riot. You you can try to lower the temperature and open up a dialogue with leaders and, and hopefully begin to have an influence. But in terms of standing out in front of a wild, angry, violent crowd, that's not the time to negotiate. You have to get control. And that's what a prison riot is about, too. So I would say this, that if you're quelling a riot, that requires a very strong tactical response. Once it's contained to a certain area of the jail, say a certain cell block, now you can open up more traditional negotiations to identify what it is the inmates are seeking, and then to begin the process of seeing what the best way to address that is. So there's many similarities, but there's also quite a few differences. But I think anybody that says, "Well, send that negotiator out there to talk to those 500 screaming people with clubs and knives." That's that's not the way to do it.
0: Yeah, that would be a challenge for sure.
1: that's yeah. um, when I I would say, "Don't put me in,
0: Coach." Yeah, I would agree. I would, I would definitely agree. What is the personal impact when a negotiation fails or breaks down?
1: I think I think it can be fairly tough. I went through a hard time after Waco, and I think a lot of people out there did. When you put your heart and soul into uh, bringing about a peaceful conclusion, and then it doesn't end that way, despite why, it's very unsettling, and you can't help but second guess and examine and hopefully learn from the process. I think the biggest impact uh, for negotiators and I think I mentioned it earlier, is the suicide situations, because, again, it's far more likely that a negotiator would blame himself or herself when some otherwise nice person who's depressed takes their life. And you you tend to take those particularly hard. If this hardened, nasty criminal decides to kill himself instead of going back to jail for the 10th time, it probably doesn't have the same impact on you, Uh, even though you might try just as hard to get that person not to kill themselves. Probably the greatest aspect of functioning as a negotiation team is we don't take all the credit for the success individually, nor all the blame. We rise and fall as a team. We collectively tap into our wisdom experience, collectively embrace the best strategy forward and implement it. And if things go bad, well, we did this together. Mm-hmm. And if they go good, we got this success together. In fact, in the FBI, we would never identify the name of the negotiator because we didn't want that sort of credit or blame focused on one person. Instead, we basically said, hey, this is a, this is a team effort, and that's the way it always should be.
0: So, and speaking of a team effort, so how do you become a hostage negotiator?
1: Well, in the FBI, obviously, you have to be a, a special agent first, and, and typically you would work as a field agent for some some years until – you had an opportunity to attend uh, the training for this. Uh, you know, the FBI has a, a wide range of specialties. Some decides they want to be a, you know, evidence response team. Or if they want to be on a SWAT team, they want to be a fingerprint expert or, you know, whatever it might be. And people gravitate to different areas of interest that are typically auxiliary functions. So by day, you might be working organized crime or foreign counterintelligence, and then if the need arises in one of these specialty areas, then you put on your SWAT uniform or your negotiation hat and respond to that. Basically, with negotiations, no one's forced to do it. It's all a voluntary program, and it attracts people that, that are drawn to using these verbal skills to try to bring about peaceful outcomes. It's, a, it's sort of a noble endeavor and, and a big mental challenge to, to be able to understand how best to do it. So you get that training and then you go out in the field and you get experience when incidents arise. And, you know, if you were like me, your path eventually ends up where you become, you asked to be one of the full-time negotiators. And eventually I became the chief negotiator for all the FBI and, uh, you know, a singular great honor that I'll, I'll always cherish.
0: Sure. And what, if you are hiring people on your team, what personality characteristics do you think you would be looking for?
1: That's a great question as well. I mean, I I think you want somebody that, as I mentioned earlier, has has a good bit of self-control. They sort of have a, a calm demeanor. They don't get upset over small things. You know, my book, Stalling for Time, has quotes at the beginning of each chapter. And in one of the chapters, I have a quote from Rudyard Kipling, which says, it's a partial quote that says, if you can keep your head about you when all else are losing theirs, well, that's a pretty significant attribute. You know, you tend to see the best and worst of people in a crisis setting. So you want those people that can stay calm, think clearly, make the best decisions they can and work together well in a team context. And and also there's th- those who are just um, naturally empathic. I always tell a story that many years ago, in one of the training sessions I was in, there was a brand new FBI agent who was going through the training and I heard him on the first night of role playing and I went up to him and I said, you're the best negotiator I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) You know, and he was. Uh, With only minimal training at that point, his voice, his demeanor, his approach was so positive, you know, that, that he was going to be successful and not everybody has that gift. Most of us have to work at it and think about how we can present ourselves to the person we're trying to help in, in the best light so that they're, most likely to to do what we want which is cooperate with us we're
0: going to take a short break please check out our live broadcast weekdays at 9 p.m eastern time and 6 p.m pacific you can also find our podcast on a number of platforms including stitcher spotify apple podcast and
2: Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, Protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia. Make us more attractive and thinner. Feel calmer and happier. And boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked. But a new, easy-to-swallow sleep gel, invented by the leading nutrition company, Healthy Cell, is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com slash sleep. That's healthy HealthyCell.com slash sleep.
0: Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. What is...
1: The negotiation that you have been the most proud of well you're going to laugh but it, waco is both the the negotiation i'm probably the most proud of and probably the one i'm most haunted by i'm very proud of the negotiation team under the most adverse of circumstances and i described those earlier with both internal problems and external problems we still got 35 people out and um, that's no small achievement and 21 of those were children but maybe I should also say that three years after Waco, we had an 85-day siege. Waco was 51. We had an 85-day siege with a group in Montana called the Freeman, an anti-government group. And in that instance, the director of the FBI, Louis Free, said, we are in no rush to get this one resolved. He said, Gary, I tell us how to do this, basically. And we we followed the approach we had at Waco. But this time we had command decision makers who supported those things. and even though it took 85 days and a lot of time and money, everyone came out alive, no shots were fired. It was a huge success. And it was a real validation to the negotiation process. Unfortunately, the public doesn't know much about it because there was nobody killed and no fires or anything. So, but that's fine. In law enforcement, when we succeed, often it, it doesn't get much much notice or credit, but that's okay. That's what we get, get paid to do.
0: Yeah, that's got to be frustrating when you've worked so hard at it. And the ones that you're aware of are the failures or the challenges uh, when there's all these successes that seem to be under the radar or under the table.
1: Yeah, I I think that's true. uh, Going back to Waco for a second, somebody wants to ask me, what's the biggest lesson from Waco? And I said, well, the biggest lesson was to do it the way we were doing it before Waco and have done it since Waco. Waco was not an example of we didn't know what to do was a matter of we departed from what we knew how to do. And, and that's the tragedy of it from the FBI's point of view of uh, David Koresh's inappropriate behavior aside. But yeah, you know, you don't get in this business to get accolades for job well done. In fact, it's kind of my experience that when somebody surrenders, particularly the tactical people tend to say, well, I guess he really didn't want to do any harm anyway. So, you know, he was an easy one for you guys. You know, and you want to say sometimes, if you think it's so easy, why don't you do it? You know, it's it's, uh, because it has a happy outcome doesn't mean it was easy whatsoever or that the person wasn't as dangerous as we thought. So, but that's just the nature of, you know, of the beast.
0: And what kind of success rate? I mean, do you keep statistics or keep track of different negotiations or how does that work?
1: Yeah, when I first got involved in it, we were just terrible about statistical uh, tracking, but they've gotten much better at it in the last 20 years. But, you know, we worked at, like I said, kidnappings we tracked. There were 120 of those in the last 10 years, and then the number of major incidents and so forth. But I mean, it's hard to give you exact numbers, but we know that we had, when we negotiated, we achieved essentially a 90% success rate right in that neighborhood. And there's almost nothing in law enforcement that has that kind of positive result. And yet, overall, I think it's not unfair or unkind or inappropriate to say that negotiations is largely unappreciated and in some instances in some jurisdictions undervalued and unacknowledged. Yet, it's And we do it not just because we want to see perpetrators and victims come out alive, but we do it because we don't want police officers to have to physically enter into a challenging situation where they may get killed or they may be forced to kill somebody else. Every time we have a successful negotiations, we can think that maybe a police officer or two is going home tonight to their families because of the job we did. That's pretty much reward enough.
0: Absolutely. You know, Tol, Tolstoy, I remember he once said something along the lines of happy families are all alike, and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I think what he was trying to say is that in order to be a happy family, there have to be some kind of common key ingredients that they all share. And I'm just wondering when you look at your history and your experience with negotiating, what are the commonalities you see in terms of an effective or a successful negotiation?
1: Oh, I that's a, that's a good one. I, I think an effective uh, negotiation, some of the common attributes, you have a supportive command element that is thoughtful and patient and allows the negotiation team to employ their skills and give them the time in order to diffuse a tense situation. Having that kind of support, restraint from the tactical team, they have to be prepared to go in to save a rescue, if the, uh, rescue the hostage if it, it starts to turn bad, but otherwise to be patient and to hold their position and not do anything provocative, and a negotiation team that's sufficiently staffed and tapping into all available information to uh, come up with the best possible strategy and being flexible in dealing with the needs of the person we're dealing with. I think those are some of the elements that come to mind. It's a, it's a good question, Joni. No one's ever asked me that.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I've, <laughs> I've thrown something at you that you haven't received for because I know that you are very well known and that you do a lot of media stuff and interviews. So I'm very, I'm very happy to hear that. And I'm also wondering, like, how, if at all, you've used some of the training and the experience that you've had in your professional life with your personal life.
1: I I think my training professionally has help me in my personal life. My wife would, it's a good thing, I don't let her do interviews with me because she, she would probably speak up and say, I can't believe this man travels around the world teaching listening. And, <laughs> you know, when he, he's, he's not doing the best job in the world here at home, you know, we all tend to take for granted those people around us. And we're sometimes not as attentive to family and close friends as we might be to a complete stranger who's holding a gun at somebody's head. And that's unfortunate. But I think it's made me be a better listener. Now it's um, what what I got mostly right, I think, with my kids. I'm doing, I think, even better with my grandkids. So that would be for someone else to judge. I'll tell you, the most powerful song for me, and I almost tear up every time I hear it, is Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. It's just a powerful, powerful song, powerful piece of poetry about when a man's child keeps coming to him to to engage and do something, he says, well, I'm kind of busy now. We'll do that later. And You know, eventually when he's an old man, he wants time with his kid and the kid says, I'm sorry, dad, I'm too busy. I don't have time now. And, you know, what goes around comes around. And and I think it's a powerful lesson to all of us that we have to stop whatever we're doing and really focus in on our children and our spouses and our loved ones and, and say, hey, you're getting my full undivided attention and, and, and you deserve it. And I deserve to hear what you have to say and to understand better how you're feeling. And, you know, I, I consider myself a continual work in progress in that regard.
0: I think that's There are many psychologists, myself included, who can really relate to what you're saying because I know being in a profession where I listen a lot of the day to different people and really focus on that, it is very difficult sometimes to be at home and and give that same level of attention to my kids. I mean, I remember one time thinking, I've listened out. You know, yes. you know, I've listened out. And so it does take a lot of effort sometimes, I think, to to carry over the best of what we have at work and bring it into our home life and not just bring home the worst, which is being tired and stressed and ex- you know exhausted and all those things.
1: Yeah, and it's tough. I mean, you know, in the FBI, we work a 10-hour day, and then I lived in the D.C. area, so you could throw on two more hours of commuting, you know, one each way. So I'd be gone from the house 12 hours and my wife was home with three kids and and we'd get the kids to bed after dinner and she'd say, well, you seem tired or stressed or whatever. What happened today? And I remember there would be times I'd say like, I just lived it for 12 hours. I don't want to live it again. <laughs> but that's not fair. And that wasn't right. And and that's when you need to share your feelings about those things instead of, for a lot of guys, we say, oh, I'm going to protect my family from this uh, Terrible thing that I was involved in today. When instead, you know, there, there's a time and a place to to be open and and giving to your family. And part of giving is is giving of yourself and the experiences you've had. So it's a challenge for everybody, not just the negotiator, but anybody in life. You you have to really work at being a good husband and and father and grandfather, whatever it might be. And uh, again, like I said, for most of us, it's a work in progress.
0: We've touched on what's going on right now in terms of. the the level of unrest that we're seeing and the clashes between different groups and the tension and not necessarily effective communication. I'm wondering as a negotiator, what advice would you give to, I guess, both sides, people who are incredibly Mm. frustrated, who don't feel heard, and then people who are maybe trying to uphold the law or don't necessarily agree with what's happened from a law enforcement perspective, but at the same time feel loyal to their profession.
1: Yeah, I think you just hit hit it in, in your question to me, you said that want to be heard. And, and if you think about protests and demonstrations, and I guess to some extent, even when they get out of control and turn into a rut, people are essentially saying, I, I want to be listened to. <laughs> I want people to know I'm upset and I'm angry over this. And I think, Law enforcement and government officials have to find better ways to demonstrate that interest in wanting to understand. People don't necessarily expect you to give them really uh, immediate, solid, foolproof solutions, but they do want you to hear. And I think we also have to be careful that we don't blanketly condemn uh, each other. You know, most of the protesters are not looters most of the cops in fact very few of the cops would ever engage in in the kind of inappropriate activity we saw in Minneapolis so you know most cops are good cops they're they're caring people so don't call them all killers and murderers and in the same token there's a lot of people out there sincerely and genuinely protesting don't call them all looters i think we tend to all want to put things in black and white and pigeonhole people. I might've mentioned that earlier. And I think it's important that we understand that these are complex and challenging issues. And we have to seek very hard to, to understand the motivation. You know, Stephen Covey said, first seek to understand and then to be understood. I think when people are behaving in a certain way, that's our cue. They're saying, I want to be heard. And I think we darn well better show that we're listening.
0: I agree. These are really critical times. And I think whenever we have a time like now, there's a huge opportunity to practice some of those things. And I think the upside of that, there's a lot of potential downside, which we're seeing some of that. But I think the potential upside is doors are open, I think, right now that are typically, if not all the way closed, they're just cracked. And so I think whenever you have a situation like that, there is an opportunity for things to move forward, maybe faster than they normally would.
1: Yeah, and I think for an example, I mean, I'm a bit of a news junkie, but I've seen some of these police officials around the country who seem to really be doing a remarkable job in interfacing with the protesters. And officers are getting on a knee and and sharing a demonstration of your concern and empathy for what they're going through. I, I think those are very positive steps that I'm seeing that I think are quite good. And then there's other jurisdictions where it's it's sort of the digression to the typical law enforcement, we're going to go get all the looters mode. And I, I don't think that's necessarily helpful here. Although there are, as I told you, you don't negotiate a prison, right? Well, you probably don't negotiate with a bunch of looters burning a building down. But you've got to be able to differentiate with what you're dealing with. And uh, when, when people are behaving in, in a reasonable way, then they should be treated reasonably. And when they're being Having in a violent way, then you, you're going to have to do what you have to do to get that situation controlled. So I think it's going to take some flexibility and creativity on both sides of this. But it's a long history we have in our country of of some of these problems. And maybe this will be a spark to to move that down the road better and and, and make us a better country.
0: Well, That's a great note for us to end on. It's a positive one. And you've kind of alluded to this, I think, already, but I always asked each of my guests at the very end, mm-hmm. If you could give one piece of advice to people in terms of how they can use negotiation skills or more effective communication to make their lives better and to make their relationships better, what would it be?
1: Listen, uh, the word would be listening, but and I'll give them a little more specificity than that. There's a number of active listening skills. I think we teach eight in the FBI. There's certainly more than that. But, but try one simple thing, and it's paraphrasing when someone is telling you something that's important to them, an experience they've had, a, you know, a a problem that they're addressing an issue a concern, whatever it is, the most powerful way you can let them know you're listening is by repeating back in your own words, what they have just told you. You don't repeat word for word, but you put in your words. So what you're saying, Joni is X, Y, Z, And I think that maybe more than any other thing I know of conveys to somebody that I'm not just saying I'm listening, I'm showing you, I'm demonstrating, I'm proving I'm listening. How do you know that? Because I just fed it back to you in my own words. So work on that one sort of technique. There's many others, but I think that's a particularly good one that that really is highly undervalued and and should be exercised a great deal more by most of us.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on today, not only in terms of helping us understand your work and what it's like to be a negotiator for the FBI, but on a personal level, a good reminder for me, Gary, to make sure later today when I'm with my kids and my husband that I practice some of the recommendations you made in terms of being a good active listener and doing some of that paraphrasing that you talked about so thank you again so much for coming on you are listening to the forensic psychologist and we'll see you next time